Welcome to the Glorious Professionals Podcast brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason McCarthy. Let's dig in with something sure to piss us both off. Written in Taliban. The first time I saw you was in the Khyber Pass. You came with your technology, elite fighters fueled by revenge, and the hubris to believe you could disprove history. This is a war that you didn't have the stomach to fight, but I'm glad you tried. We bled you the same way we bled the Soviets in our Holy Land. We bled you the same way the Vietnamese bled you in their homeland. We did it patiently and deliberately. Patience, something Westerners never learn. Our history is millennial. We don't yearn for an early victory when the infidel ravages our Holy Land. Our victory is celebrated decades from now. We've endured, then ravaged every standing military that crossed our borders. Why? How? We're patient. In 30 days, we'll be stronger, richer, and have control over precious natural resources that you need for your pathetic life dictated by comfort. We will have women, riches, land, guns, and ownership of one of the greatest chapters in military history. You lose. If you want to try again, we welcome the challenge. You will fail regardless of how much money you burn in our deserts. For pity, here is free advice that may contribute to your future success, should you ever decide to invade again. You recruit your warriors and supporters from a drug-addicted, distracted, disillusioned population that's obsessed with comfort and entertainment, a population obsessed with altering their mundane reality, alcohol, marijuana, pills, and our new favorite, Tide Pods. Every time your doctors prescribe opiate painkillers, you line our coffers with gold. Your population's thirst for our pristine heroin has never been more lucrative for our warrior tribes. We will keep feeding you poison for as long as you keep your hands out. If your population wasn't so spineless, undisciplined, and self-loathing, then you might be able to compile a raiding party with enough tenacity to outthink ours. Our fighters are born into war, raised in it. It's a way of life that evades your first world nations. They live a life of such immense misery and pain that they're willing to fight barefoot in the snow for the opportunity to martyr themselves. They yearn for the opportunity to die. When they do have the blessed opportunity to sacrifice themselves, they sit above Muhammad at the right hand of God. Blessed in Allah for eternity. What honors do your fighters receive? Their empty sacrifice is remembered in the form of a three-day weekend. The majority of your population uses this sacred time to get drunk and grow more fat as a way to celebrate their fallen warriors. Sadly, we pay tribute to their death more honorably. The colored pieces of cloth you pin on their chests are similar to the jewelry worn by our women. What good are accolades and vanity if you don't have the stomach to endure a fight? We don't offer the burden of health care to our fighters as they often want to die for Allah. Your fighters fight to live. Their inability to reconcile the inevitable outcome of our patience leads them to kill themselves. Your medications, counselors, and nonprofits will never undo the pain and suffering you forced them to endure. It will never remove the pain we've caused your broken nation. You are your own worst enemy. We will give your fighters credit. Some are creative, tenacious, and fierce. They outgun us in every way possible. But again, we simply wait them out. Allah is patient. You cycle them through our holy lands every three to 12 months for their combat rotations. After their tour is complete, they return to the comfort of their warm beds and endless entertainment. If you left them here in our holy land with no way out but to win, then you might have had a chance of success. The longer you poisoned our holy land with your presence, your rules of engagement only strengthened our position. There's only one rule in war, 
that is to win. Your commanders made you fight with your hands tied behind your back. Your rules also confused our fighters too. We're clearly the enemy. Why are they letting us go? Thank you for your compassion as it allowed our fighters to kill more infidels. We began to feel as if your commanders were on our side. We're thankful your most vicious dogs were never allowed off their leash. Your showcase generals make us laugh. You spend millions of dollars flying them around our country, inventing new ways to win while ignoring the guidance of our most capable foes. Your generals make decisions to minimize risk to their fragile reputation with the ultimate goal of securing a lucrative retirement, jobs with suppliers that fuel your losing force, a self-serving circle that's built on the backs of your youngest and most naive fighters. Your retired generals earn tens of thousands of dollars talking to your political, industrial, and financial leaders about teams, winning, and discipline. It's a mockery of the war they refuse to fight. It's a mockery of the infidel warriors who died in our lands. We urge you to continue following their vacuous personalities so we can further watch your once great nation collapse. Your statesmen and elected officials are spineless, narcissistic, and more cowardly than your generals. They crave power over you above all else. They come to our country, hide behind blast walls, and only heed the word of the indigenous leader they put in power. I believe your soldiers call this a self-licking ice cream cone. They've burned billions of dollars in a wasted effort to bring clean water, electricity, business, education, agriculture, and exports to a region that didn't ask for it. You should have saved yourself the effort and simply given the money directly to us. Don't worry. Your diplomatic friends gave us plenty of your American tax dollars. If you want to give it another shot with your soft power, send those with real experience, not fancy degrees and silver tongues. Over the next few months, we will make the world understand that you failed worse than any fighting force that's ever invaded our lands. Today we celebrate victory. As you evacuate your embassy, our fighters will be standing in the shade. Our RPG marksmen will be patient. We thank you for the parting gifts. You'll find surface-to-air missiles staged in the back of Toyota pickup trucks that you purchased for us. We saw what Extortion 17 did to your nation and the morale of your fighting force. Do your citizens even remember that victory? We'll be repeating and improving upon our victory while your citizens and sympathizers evacuate in disgrace. Every one of your foes around the world will know exactly how to break you. You are welcome to fly your empty drones, target our cell phones, and send your spies, but they too will ultimately fail. We'll use their failures to show the world that you're not all-powerful. You're a false front, an empty shell. You lie, cheat, steal, and are easily defeated because you lack the spine to fight. This is your history now. We're grateful Allah gave us the opportunity to show the world how to defeat the infidels. We look forward to seeing you again across the battlefield. Praise be to God, the Taliban. Rich and I are here in the Champagne Room, Jack's Beach, Florida, where our blood is completely boiling. And today our guest is Matthew Griffin, one of the authors of that piece I just read. Griff's a 2001 West Point graduate, Army Ranger, combat veteran with the 75th Ranger Regiment, so three times in Afghanistan, one time in Iraq, and CEO of Combat Flip Flops, which he co-founded in Kabul, Afghanistan. Also joining us is longtime friend and former Green Beret, Blaine Smith, Griff's fellow West Point classmate, combat veteran of 3rd Special Forces Group in Afghanistan, and co-founder of Applied Leadership Partners. I've read it out loud a couple times, and like it's hard not to just get angrier as you read it, which only makes it more intense, and then it becomes harder to read. Yeah, so let's let's kick it off. Griff, 
How much of your rage were, were you actually able to channel into to what you wrote? Uh, a small fraction of it. Um, the depth of it is, is hard. I think that, you know, you guys like you and I, we went there, we did what we were asked and we saw these things on the ground and then we come back and we tell people and then they funnel us into the box of conspiracy theorist, angry veteran. And that only like, it only makes you angrier and angrier. And I've been, you know, saying this stuff since 2004, 2005, I get out and we're those, that hippie company and flip-flops with long hair telling people business, not bullets. We need to go over there with business leaders. And just telling people like what we were doing with as a military and as a nation was so irresponsible and everybody just discounted us, laughed at us. And just like in the inside, it's I all shove that all anew into boxes and I shove it in the closet. And unfortunately, last Saturday morning, that closet door opened and some of it poured out onto the Internet. So we talked to another uh, a task force dagger, Afghanistan veteran, Aaron Hand, and he's like, look, man, I haven't been sleeping. I have, I've just, you know, been angry. It's been really difficult. I woke up at three o'clock in the morning. One time I was like, I gotta, I gotta write something. So he, he wrote his, his pieces as well. And he's like, man, it took me an hour. And then I got, I got two hours of peaceful sleep before my shift started. What's your story in the actual, the actual writing? So there's a song by Perfect Circle. It's called Pet. And I encourage all of you after this, um, after listening to this podcast, go on Spotify and just hit up Pet, P-E-T, by Perfect Circle. And the song is written in the voice of a warmongering politician telling Americans to go back to sleep. We'll protect you against your enemies. We'll protect you from the evil ones. Just go back to sleep. And if you listen to the words in this song and then you apply it to this morning and then look at our representatives, you can see the truth in that song. And Again, I'll say it again, you know, people funnel us, no matter how successful we are. I mean, Blaine has led one of the largest nonprofits in America, organized hundreds of thousands of people to change their lives. You're doing the same thing with Go Rock. I've done that with Combat Flip Flops. We're moving people toward a positive outcome in their life, and we're being successful in that manner. And when we speak up against these things that are going wrong in our government, people discount us. They discount our leadership. They discount our wisdom. And... Um, I couldn't think of a way to communicate it and what people wouldn't funnel us into that box. And I, whether you call it by divine spirit or inspiration, but I just, my eyes popped open Saturday morning and it's like, I have to write this in the voice of the enemy. I have to stick the knife into the American public and I have to twist it hard to get them to wake up. And so I, I, I jammed out a really good rough draft. I sent it out to a couple of veteran authors that I know and a fellow team leader, Scott Chapman, that I served in the Rangers with said, hey man, it's good but we need to jam it in a little bit harder. Like a, like a good Ranger team leader, he's like, man, let's, let's go for the throat on this one. And so the two of us on Google Drive, I mean, he was editing, I was approving edits. And within two hours, he's like, when are you going to put this out? I'm like, it's going live now. This is how we do it as Rangers. We go live. And we sent it and it went viral. Yeah. So, I mean, look, both of you are, I count you both as, as friends. And I, I look to you as leaders in, in the veteran space. and. I, I mean, I, I did not serve in Afghanistan. I was in Iraq. I'm, I'm one of the, the, of the four of us with Rich here. You, you three have been in Afghanistan and, and Blaine, you've kind of, I, I haven't heard anything from you. I know it's not for lack of, of thought. Griff's response was, was classic Ranger, right? You know, <laughs> when ambush, counter ambush, I guess that's kind of Ranger doctrine for all of us. What's, what's up with you? Like, what's your, what's your thought process on, on all of this? Yeah, man, I, I appreciate you asking. I appreciate you giving me a chance to 
speak out some of this publicly because I, like most of the veterans I've talked to, have not been quite sure what to think. I mean, I've had kind of the range of emotions around this, anger certainly being one of them, but but not the only one. You know, sadness, confusion, you know, it's churned up a lot of stuff for me personally. And I kind of made a promise to myself a long time ago that if I didn't feel like I really had anything to say, that I wouldn't say anything. And, And so my approach to this has been, until I'm even... Like, I'm not quite sure what to feel, which means I'm not quite sure what to think about it. And if that's the case, then I'm not quite sure what to say about it. So I just want to be responsible with my words. And I've, I've saved most of them for private conversations. So I've had a lot of private conversations with guys that were on my ODA that I served in Afghanistan with, with people like Joe Quinn and Brandon Young, my business partner. You know, people have spent a lot of their lives and have invested in places like Afghanistan and others just to sort of get our heads around it collectively and, and to support each other individually. So I've been spending most of my time doing that. I also spend a fair amount of my work time on a project via the Bush Institute, ironically enough, um, that is working to support veterans through high quality mental health care. So there's been a lot of action on that side of the house, as you might imagine. So we've been making sure that we can get people directed to good care if they're having a hard time dealing with this. So a lot of my work has been a little more personal, a little more behind the scenes. But in part of that, if I can just be honest, is that Unlike Griff, who's had like a very intimate and ongoing connection with what's going on in Afghanistan and has been very involved and, and vocal about that, you know, my experience in Afghanistan, as you know, Jason, I lost five of my teammates there. I had a very bad experience from a kinetic perspective, but also just from a, like a political and a policy perspective. I was fairly disenfranchised with what we were doing there by the time I left, and it was particularly painful because I, I, I literally picked up pieces of my teammates and put them in body bags for an effort that I came to understand was just sort of a self-licking ice cream cone by the end of it. Um, And as a person who's tried really hard not to be too angry, you know, I couldn't help but be a little bit. And so part of the defense mechanism, I think for myself, has been just to kind of make peace with it. Like, I think when I left Afghanistan a long time ago, I at least felt like there's an inevitable and predictable bad ending to this. And I'm going to have to make peace with that so that I can be at peace personally and then divert most of my attention toward taking care of veterans that were coming home from places like that. So that's sort of been my macro approach for a lot of years now. And as it relates to this sort of acute set of circumstances, I guess it's just kind of continued, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Griff, like I see you, you're out there. It's like, don't give these assholes another thing to be proud about. Like, don't kill yourself. You know, yeah, that as a message is, is really strong. It's also, look, I always struggle with this from the standpoint of when, when we come out and say that it also stigmatizes veterans from the standpoint of, Oh, you guys all want to kill yourselves now because you went to war. And it's, it's like, it's just so polarized. I mean, and it, it shouldn't be, but it, it kind of is, you know, and, and, and I know what Blaine's talking about, you know, going through going through something that's really hard and, and, you know, it's like defense mechanisms, you know, like Blaine, when I think about, or when you think about your, your guys, like specifically their last breath on planet fucking earth was in Afghanistan, your teammates, brothers in arms. Like, I mean, how, what's, there's a lot of guys out there right now that are, that are going through this. Like what's the actual emotional reaction? Like what, what's the license to feel, feel like with, with that? Yeah, I mean, I think you have a license to feel whatever whatever comes up. I think, and I think that's important to state. By the way, is that you know w- one of the the feelings I've had over the last few days has been one of relief, if I can be honest. Like that's not maybe popular to say, but to know that this situation is coming to 
somewhat of an end and that we're not going to continue to send more good young men and women over there into a, an effort that doesn't appear to have any clear objective or desired end state makes me feel a little bit of relief. I mean, as one of many emotions that have, that have flown through and I'm not trying to give myself a hard time for feeling that way. So I think it's important to state that like, Hey, whatever you're feeling right now, it's valid if that's what's coming up, you know, as it relates to my teammates in particular and, you know, their friends and their families, I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure um, how best to support those folks because I don't know that it's helpful to sort of feel bitter or angry about it, though I think it's completely understandable. So maybe to just evoke a cliche that we use a lot in the military is that I was there with those guys. And I know for a fact that what we cared most about was each other. So I'm not going to say that we didn't care about the mission or that we didn't care about Afghanistan. I mean, we wanted to do well and we wanted to do it right. But at the end of the day, we cared most about each other. And so if you were in that position and, and you fought, you took someone's life, like it was, it was in support of one another first and foremost. Um, and I think that's just the truth. So any of the, any of the fighting or any of like just the terrible acts of violence that people like us have been involved in, you know, you don't have to tie that completely to American foreign policy or to an eventual outcome in Afghanistan. I think at the end of the day, when you jocked up and got on a bird and went on a target, you were trying to take a very bad person off the battlefield and you were trying to defend these guys around you that were your family. And I think that's, that's noble enough. And that's not, that's never in vain. God bless, man. So there's, there's additional complexities here, right? I mean, this is, this has been a shit show. It didn't have to be like this, right? I mean, we're talking right next to me, you know, yeah. Rich was in the fall of Saigon, right? He's like deja vu all over again. Right. Yeah. And, and so Griff from a, like, what are we, what are we doing now? It's fine to kind of write the postmortem and, and say, Hey, this is a shit show and all that stuff, but what's going on? Where are you pouring your, your passions right now? So, uh, I'm funneling all of my anger and rage into a very focused argument and one clear call to action to anybody who listens to me. I want everybody to call their representatives and have them cancel the authorized use of military force, the AUMF. This is the, the thing that Congress stands on to wage these forever wars without accountability. Every single person that listens to this should call a representative and say, end the AUMF. After that, I want you to go to this website, SIGAR.mil, S-I-G-A-R.mil. It is a special investigative general report on Afghanistan reconstruction. These reports have been coming out quarterly for the last 11 years on what's been going on in Afghanistan. And they highlight the failures. To, and the, the writing in it, it's weird because it's from the government, but it's aggressive. It shows in every which way that State Department was completely and totally incapable of executing the plans that they had made. It shows that how aid workers were completely and totally unable to execute the plans that they had made. It shows that they weren't able to find qualified people to have these positions to serve there in this capacity for our nation. And the ones that they had, they couldn't keep because they were the, pe the people that were qualified were so frustrated by the lack of progress and effort of the leadership. You need to take those two pieces of information to your representatives, bang on their door, and get them to answer these questions of why they didn't do anything, even though they received the information every three months. So Griff, I am all for an active citizenry, right? Like, yeah. you know, we wake up, all of us can do more. And sometimes it takes things like this to, to wake us up. 
what are we doing about the fact that there's Americans trapped in Kabul? There's Taliban all over town with, with checkpoints, not letting Americans get there. There's interpreters who have fought, bled, and died w with American soldiers over there for, for the past 20 years. I mean, the idea of, hey, let's exit with some class and some planning is, is kind of out the window. Like, how do, we, how do we make the most of the situation on the ground right now? There is nothing we can do. And I hate to say it, like literally there is nothing that anybody can do other than sit and wait and hope for the best. Like my, like I, we're currently, we, you know, we're getting family members out, you know, for our factory workers, we're getting our school workers out. We're pulling every string we have within 20 years of our service within the military community to actively get these human beings on manifests and get them on airplanes. That's just step one, just to get them on the list. And then you know, you, and I've been trying to think all morning of a way to explain this to people. You remember when COVID came down and you didn't see anybody outside, like you stepped outside and it was like a ghost town. And then you see that one guy running down the street and you're like, oh, that's really noticeable. That's what it's like on the streets of Kabul. Everybody's inside, everybody's locked down. And the only people out on the street are the people trying to get out of the country. So they've just essentially cleared the streets and made everybody moving there, especially if they've got a bag, a target. These guys are on corners and military armored vehicles, rocking machine guns, RPGs, all of the gear on every corner. And there's multiple checkpoints between their homes where they're hiding and the airport. They're having to pay money, right? $1,500 a person is what we're hearing just for an average civilian to get out of country. If you're on a list, it can be up to a hundred grand. We created the largest fatal funnel in GBOT history and we did it for the enemy. The only thing that we can do right now is like, send them and manifest a good outcome. The only thing that I have to say about that, and my only hope is, is that the Taliban does not want America to come back. They already own the terrain. Why fight for it twice? Why give us a reason to come back? And so that's the only thing that I can hope is that they're going to let everybody out so that we can be like, no, no, just get out of here. Because all the people that they want out are the ones who could possibly question the government and raise a revolt. They want the brain drain. They want all the scholars. They want all the doctors. They want all the critics out of country because all they're going to do and their belief is they're going to tax some other nation to take care of them. Meanwhile, they're sitting on they're sitting on Afghanistan as kings. Nobody's going to mess with them. They just proved over 20 years you can't. So like, that's that's the situation right now. There's nothing you can do. So what are you doing then? You say you're pulling all uh, as many strings, whatever you have. I mean, you, you, you're manufacturing or were manufacturing in in Afghanistan, right in town. Yeah, we had to hide all of our inventory that had anything with America on it. We had our factory owners burn anything that they had that tied us to them, any records, receipts, everything else. They're wiping all their phones. They're wiping their computers of anything that we've had to deal with them. And we're getting on conversations of WhatsApp. You know, We've got them linked up with the manifest manager at Kaya. I pulled some inside strings on a few other channels to get them out, but there's no teams that can actually get out of the airport to go pick these people up and escort them. The only way that you get to the airport safely is you pay the Taliban and have the Taliban escort you to the airport. That's the way this works right now. If you've ever been to Kabul, this guy's this will make sense. And so it's, it's the equivalent of like, take the Mogadishu mile that they had in Somalia and the Rangers, multiply that by five, add 5,000 militants in way better arms and armor and rockets, and then do that run with your family. Like one of our interpreters yesterday, his wife got dehydrated and ended up in the hospital because she couldn't make the, the jaunt. Like, it's not just combat guys who are doing this. This is men, women, and children. Children. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Blaine, what, are you, what goes through your head when you, when you hear that? 
It, it almost seems surreal. I mean, to hear what Griff's describing, kind of Moog Mile times five, kids running down the road. I mean, it feels almost fictional. But if, if you've been to places like that, you can understand how it could become become a reality. And I think that for for guys like us, for most people, especially Americans, uh, a feeling of hopelessness is is hard to, uh, or helplessness maybe, is very hard to kind of get your head around. I, uh, my partner, Brandon, and I have talked a lot about, at the beginning of COVID, we talked about this, to be the kind of people that just want to jump in and kind of run to the sound of the guns and be helpful in whatever way you can. And to feel like you're just sitting on the sidelines and there's basically nothing you can do to you know, significantly influence the situation is, is a hard feeling. So my heart's really out to folks like Griff, who, again, who, who know these people and have been infinitely involved. You know, I've kind of put enough space between myself and Afghanistan, you know, just sort of mentally that it's, it's almost surreal to, to imagine it now. But it also feels very, very unnecessary. And I'm not an expert. I've not been involved much at all lately. But I think that's the part that if I am really angry, the part I'm, I'm most angry about is it just seems like we could have, should have done so much better. And like the, the overestimation of the ability of the Afghan security forces and the underestimation of the Taliban, I think is, it's farcical. It was, it was clear, and I think it has been for a long time, that the Taliban were far more capable and, and far more ready than anyone was saying publicly, and that the Afghan security forces were far less capable, and far less ready. And to, so to see the, the massive miscalculation, and I don't mean that to say, to say anything bad about the Afghan security forces or any of their leaders. I just think that the writing was on the wall for a long time. And our ability to do this in, a, in an orderly way and to put so many people at risk in the process just feels like we just should have done so much better. So Rich, when he starts talking about Moog Mile and comparing it to that, I mean, you were, you were there. What does it bring up, especially when he starts talking about families evacuating and what's going through your head? Well, I immediately go back to 1975 in Saigon. Uh, I was on a team that, that went in and brought out some specifically identified people that government agencies wanted out of the country, that it, they had worked with us, they'd helped us, and they were extremely at-risk type people. And I, I can envision in my mind, or I can remember in my mind exactly what the, the streets were like, the, the people were like, the confusion, the frustration on behalf of the civilian populace, particularly as we moved through, it was almost like they were shell-shocked, that they didn't know what to do or how to do it. And I think the same thing is happening in Kabul right now in, in a lot of instances. They have some general ideas, but they don't know what to do. They don't know where the threat is going to come from next because there's threats all over the place. And it's, it's that thought of confusion, families in turmoil, families that are split apart, uh, that have gotten caught with mother and father in one location, children in another, or husbands and wives split up, whatever it might be, trying to get back together and get themselves to a point of safety, a safe refuge somewhere. It's, Blaine put it succinctly in one word, and it's called frustration. It's frustration on our part watching this happen. It's frustration on their part being involved in it and not knowing what to do or who to turn to because they had looked at us for so many years as, as a place to turn to. I remember I got involved with Afghanistan in the, in the mid-'80s, worked with the Mujahideen at that time. Later on in my second career uh, in education, uh, I was involved with uh, the Afghanis coming to Fort Bragg and uh, North Carolina to try to determine how to build a non-commissioned officer corps in the Afghan army. That was a, a key element to me because 
you can have all the generals you want to have in the world, and that doesn't mean the Army's going to be successful. There has to be mid-level management, just like there, there's mid-level management in corporate America. You have to have people that can work with and control the troops to make sure that things are done in an appropriate manner and follow mission guidelines. And they recognized that that was a major problem in the Afghan army at that time in the mid-90s. And it, it continued through today. That's one of the reasons. Now, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hearing through some, some folks I know that there are Afghan army elements. There are special operations Afghan elements that are moving to the northern area of Afghanistan and reconstituting themselves. I don't know what for, probably for their own safety right now. Uh, and then perhaps something will, will come of that. Uh, one would hope so. It's all about freedom and fighting for freedom. But right now, it's just such a chaotic situation, just like it was in Saigon, just like it was in Mogadishu. Now it is in Kabul. Yeah. I've been to the Panjshir. I've done that run from Kabul to the Panjshir. Yeah, I've met Masood, the guy who's leading the fight right now. I've sat in his garden and hung out with him. He's tr Sandhurst trained, so the British Military Academy. And uh, a good person. Like, if, if there's anybody who's going to do it, uh, Abdullah Abdullah, the former vice president for the Afghan constitution, is claiming the presidency. He's there in the valley. But unfortunately, this ain't the 80s anymore. They're surrounded. You know, they got Russia to the north. They got Iran to the west. They got Pakistan to the east, the Taliban to the south. That, that terrain is almost impenetrable. The fact that the Russians tried is amazing. Like as a st student of military history, growing through that slot into the Panjshir Valley, then opening up into the valley, and seeing complete Russian formations rusting in hulks is astounding that they even tried. The Panjshiris, like they've got their fighting positions dug in and they will give the best fight anybody has ever seen. I guarantee it. They decide to go in there, it's going to be on, but they're not going to have the support. I mean, all of these guys that are rolling are rolling in with our forward-looking infrared radar. They've got all of our machine guns. They've got all of our armored vehicles. They've got all of those things and the Panjshiris don't. It's different. And my hope is that they, they do well and they survive, but it's going to be a tough fight for them. And the only way to get them supplies is going to be via airplane. And what airspace are we going to get into that's going to allow us to do that? I mean, that's, that's just going to be the thing. What foreign nations are going to allow us to drop in supplies to those guys to continue their fight? Well, when you hand over the keys to Bagram, it makes it pretty hard. Yeah. Hey, here you go, guys. Enjoy. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at a map, if you just look, Kabul is just say the center and then Bagram is an hour and a half to the northeast and then Panjshir is two hours to the northwest. They're all in this little teeny tiny triangle in the center of the country. And you're flying over enemy airspace that is littered with surface to air missiles, right? Being funneled in from whatever country. So how are we going to do it? Because we, we committed such strategic and tactical errors that to even to supply these guys, we're going to be putting U.S. service members, pilots, and air crews at risk just so these guys can fight for their lives. I know they're willing to do it. I would do it in a heartbeat. If they let me on a plane, I would be pushing stacks out all day long. But it was a risk that didn't need to be taken. Well, I think we'll too, like not to get like into geopolitics here, but I think there's also the risk of a proxy war developing in a place like that. And I think that's something that the American people should probably have their have their radar up for. Is that we just have to be really careful about how many of those types of things that we want to get ourselves involved in, and people that aren't aren't experts in Syria or haven't paid much attention there. There's a possibility of us being engaged in a proxy war with a number of other developed countries, and we have to we have to consider you know how much we'd want to be involved, even if it's not in a like boots on the ground type capacity, as other 
other powers try to move in to the vacuum. So the Taliban is there and they own the ground, as Griff said, but we don't know to this point how Iran or Pakistan or China or Russia or others might want to involve themselves in whatever resources are there. And so, you know, we need to be mindful of the fact that we're not just going to be engaging the Taliban if we choose to involve ourselves further in Afghanistan. It's going to be much more complex than that. And we need to make sure that we have eyes open. So Griff, you spent a lot of time in in Kabul. Do you expect from the people there, right? Do you expect a kind of a guerrilla style resistance to develop against the Taliban? I, I think it's going to happen. You know, my hope is that the uh, the women in the country, you know, start slitting throats at night. And I know that sounds like super bad to say, but... No, I think it sounds super good to say. I think they start, you know, recruiting these girls as sex slaves. You know, they're going to put them in the kitchen with a knife at some point. These guys are going to have to get some sleep at some point. Right. And I, I just really hope they take it to them. Like they have grown up under, you know, under the hopes of being having a free life. And now they're going to feel the weight of oppression. And I hope they channel that and toward, you know, taking them from the inside out. That's all that I can say. Amen. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. It's not, it's not the glorification of violence. Like it's just a movie or it's pretend there are times when that's the only language, like this idea that, you know, these deals were struck in Doha with these civilized people and everything's going to be okay. And now there's press conferences talking about how, oh, the Taliban are letting the Americans through the checkpoints, like we're in fucking Switzerland or something, right? Like it's, it's madness. And, and I think that, you know, the more that that stuff happens, the matter I get. And so there, there is a certain degree of therapy, if you will, in, in talking to, to both of you and having Rich here. And I know, you know, Griff, you're, you're letting feelings be known. Blaine, I'm really glad to hear that you're doing the same in, in circles with your, your teammates and Brandon and, and guys around you. What is to, to sort of transition back to the, the home front, back to the United States of America and specifically the, the veterans? I mean, I, I get it. This, this sucks for Americans and stuff, but th there's an investment that veterans have made, not only in these wars, but in each other. And, and the hard part for me personally is this is just, I mean, we're just taking a black eye that we just did not need to take to points that you, you've both sort of made. I mean, we could have absolutely done this in an orderly way. This is not, I mean, we own the battle space. You can exit exactly as you want. A few pop shots here and there is, is not what's going on right now. And it's, it, it just defies logic. That's hard. And I, I say that not just to play the blame game, but I say that because it's what a lot of people are feeling. A lot of messages we're all getting from, from friends and expressing like, how do we take care of each other even better back here? Well, let's, let me just start off by saying that I think this is the, the fundamental question, at least for me right now, because I don't feel hopeless or helpless with regard to reaching out to and supporting my fellow veterans and those that served in Afghanistan or the military more generally. So I think that's important. Amen. The other thing I want to say, though, is that this isn't hard for Americans writ large. Like, that's just the truth. I think for most Americans, the situation in Afghanistan right now is no more bothersome to them than their favorite team losing a, a Stanley Cup playoff game or their team losing the Super Bowl. Like, I wish that weren't so, but that's the truth. I mean, there's been a very, very small percentage of Americans who have actually bore the brunt of these long wars over the last 20 or so years. And that's part of the problem. These things are allowed to continue to go on. They're allowed to continue to go on relatively unchecked 
right? Because most Americans have not been adversely affected by what's going on over there in any kind of real way. So for folks to say now that like, this is a huge black eye for us and we feel really upset about it, like you don't, because what's happening this past week over in Afghanistan has no more, you know, major life difficult than what's been going on over the last 20 years. And that's not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm not upset with anybody, but I think that's a reality that we have to acknowledge is that part of what has allowed the situation there to get as bad as it has gotten and for our withdrawal to be as, as poor as it was, was the fact that so few Americans by percentage have any real skin in the game or anything to lose in it. And I think when you start looking at incentives, there have been a lot of people who have benefited from the war efforts continuing on as long as they have, whether that's financially or, or otherwise. But very don't, few- don't even get me started on Hollywood. Please carry on. Yeah. yeah. So like, and I'm, I'm, I don't believe in any kind of grand conspiracies around any of this with like, you know, Halliburton or Northrop Grumman or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I believe that human beings are, are motivated and driven by incentives. And so if there are real incentives on the positive side for these things to continue relatively unchecked and kind of status quo to be maintained, and no one's really feeling the, the downside on the other end of it, other than a very small population of people that have served or are serving there, then like, of course, these things are allowed to continue. So I don't think, and I just want to point out, like, I don't think this is that big a loss for the average American person. And I think maybe we're lucky that that's the case. Like maybe, maybe it's awesome that we live in a place where so few people can be adversely affected by such a great tragedy. But my focus right now is on trying to support the people that are close to me, support the people that kind of look and smell like those people, because I know they're actually going through a tremendously difficult time right now. And so I think that's where, where we've got to apply our effort. So how do we do that? Yeah, I would agree with, with Blaine. I, I've had countless, my phone's been ringing off the hook for my buddies and, and my, even my friends saying, hey, you doing okay? And then people come and be like, hey man, I'm not doing all right. Well, like, again, I'll say this, don't give those pricks a satisfaction. Don't let them, you know, take one more American life. And it's, it, leadership is providing purpose, direction, and motivation. That is it. Like our purpose right now is to make sure that this does not happen to our children. The motivation that we have is that we, if you care about your country, the direction we have is like, take it to your reps, choke them with it, make them answer why they didn't take care of our country and they just wasted all of this national potential. And then the motivation is, is like, we don't want this to happen to our kids. It's a foregone conclusion for our generation. The only thing we can do is save those behind us. That's it. That's all that we can do. We, we, we need to do our best to protect U.S. service members that are serving right now and the ones that are thinking about signing up. And you guys saw this, the poor families that, you know, they, these kids had no way out but to, you know, to join the military and then they get thrust into these wars. And we need to make sure that the people who are trying to do their best and serve their country don't get shoved in these situations in the future. That's what we can do. I, I mean, to, to, to be clear though, Griff, I mean, I, I went and chose the war very willingly. And, oh yeah, and, both of us did. Yeah, yeah, I get yeah, you. Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> right and, there with you. Yeah. And, and we wanted, we wanted this. And yeah. It, <laughs> I'm not here to sit and say, hey, you know, the blame game, failure, failure, failure. It just, there's a betrayal. And part of it is life is not fair. Like this was never going to be perfect. Like we never defined victory. There was no clearly established intent. And and the hard part at a higher level is to say, you go back to 2001, one of the lessons was, well, if you have no embassy and you have no network and you have no, you know, connections inside of the country, and you just kind of let it go, well, bad things happen. And that's what, that's what happened. And so now, 20 years later, we're basically going back 
we're going back to that. Yes, our maps are a little bit better. And yes, we probably have more people's phone numbers, all the people that are trying to get out now, of course. And yes, you know, we, we know more of the resistance fighters that are going to congregate in the North, but that's the hard part. You know, so when, when you sit and say, like, Blaine, was this, was it worth it? And other questions, what are the hardest questions that you're, you're asking yourself and how do you deal with them? I mean, was it worth it is a pretty, a pretty heavy one, I, but I, and I'm not trying to deduct the question, but I just, I just don't think about it that way. I think that, and I mean this sincerely, I think that anything done in earnest is never done in vain. Um, and when I think about my service in particular, I think that I served in earnest. You know, I loved my men. I loved the mission. I cared about it. I did the very best I could. And sometimes it didn't work out very well for me or for the people I was serving with. But I feel confident that every one of those, every one of those guys was, was doing it in earnest. And so, you know, I think that, you know, my friend Ben Bunn, who I know you also know, wrote something on Instagram I thought that was, was pretty insightful. That basically just said that same thing. Like, we're human beings and we don't really know what our purpose on this earth is to do. But if you can get up and be engaged with other people, care about them and do things with your, with your very best and, and be engaged in things that you care about, that, that makes life worth living. And so for a, a, my entire 20s, I got up every morning and the thing that I cared about was taking care of my soldiers, being the fastest, strongest, most proficient soldier I could be. And at certain times in Iraq and Afghanistan, defeating the enemy. I did all those things with the very best of, of my ability and with the, the best of intentions, frankly. I believe that what I was doing at that time was, was right and was just. And so what has happened now, 10 years later or 12 years later or whatever, is not doesn't change what went on in 2004, 2009, or during any of those times. And I think that for every service member that listens to this, every veteran, they need to remember that too, that you can't go back and rewrite history based on what happens sometime in the future. I think that's really important. I agree. Griff, how, how are you, how are you dealing with, with the hardest questions? I just say, Hey guys, we did, we did the best that we could with what we had at the time that we were called to do so. And, and all, I know all of us can look back and say that confidently. Uh, there's an, his line that comes out of the Israeli military as, out of their pararescue is to save a life is to save a world. And I know at some point in time we helped an Afghan and somebody wrote a response to my written in Taliban piece from an Afghan civilian's perspective, it's like, you gave me a college education. You showed me the way. You enabled me to create a life for my family, right? It was written from that perspective. And we did create that. Like us as US service members, we created that space for so much good to happen in the world. And it is not our fault. And there's this, uh, it's, it's a Clint Eastwood movie from the um, it's either 60s or 70s, but it's Two Mules for Sister Sarah. And this is the one that really enabled me to undo the burden of a lot of the stuff that I felt downrange. And so he was a former union soldier who is now a hired gun and was getting this, you know, nun to a, a little rebel group. And she's given him a hard time about being not being a patriot. And he looks at her and he says, everybody's got a right to be a sucker once. Like I read all the books when I was younger. I watched all the movies. I went to the military academy. I went to Ranger School. I drank all the Kool-Aid. And I did what I thought was right based on what I was told. And when I got there, I saw it was something different and that's okay. Everybody has that right to be fooled, but we can't let it happen again. And we can't let it happen to the generations behind us. Guys, well, you know, the, the seeds that, the, the hardest people in this for me to think about are uh, American veterans and the women and children of Afghanistan. And when, when you, you take both of those kind of separately and you say, okay, so in Afghanistan, seeds were planted. And you know, you've got these incredible individuals, leaders, 
these folks in America who have served overseas, who are, who are the people and the leaders that they are, who have the voice and the confidence in order to tackle the hard issues, in order to speak truth to power, in order to bring out the, the big megaphone and, and to, to, to have the private conversations, both and all, right? That exists because of, of our service overseas. And America needs those voices now more than ever. And those, those voices were paid for in blood and they were paid for in sacrifice. And there, there's some silver lining there. We can't go back in time, but we can do, we can do what we can do with what we have. And, and we've learned a lot. So amen to sort of paying it forward. And to, to the other side is that there is this taste of freedom that has been planted, this seed that has been planted amongst the women and children specifically in Afghanistan. And, and I'm right there with you, Griff, man. It's like, rise up, rise up. It's, it's not gonna get better. They know it. The women and children specifically and the men in Afghanistan, they know it. Like the Taliban, man, it's like, oh yeah, they've changed, right? They stay in one fancy hotel in Doha and now they're different people. I mean, come on, give me a break, right? So Blaine, you're, you're exactly right to bring up, you know, there, there is going to be proxy wars. There is going to be requests for support. I mean, special forces are all over the globe, 80 countries right now or something, right? You know, Afghanistan's another country at some point and how we're going to approach quote unquote support for, for Massoud and, and for, you know, Northern Alliance 2.0 and all that, those are really relevant questions that are going to be solved by, by thought leaders framing, framing arguments in thoughtful ways. That's what we can hope for anyway. And so it, it's really difficult to watch what's going on. And I know a lot of people are feeling that and just sort of, I think that the, the veteran population owes you guys a, a debt of gratitude for just kind of leading from the front. And so any, any parting remarks, any things in, things in closure, any last things you'd like to get out? I'll offer a couple of resources if it's okay. I think that if you are a veteran or a family member or someone that's just sort of wrestling with this right now, there are places you can go if you need some help. I mean, if you're really in crisis, the, the VA crisis line is actually manned by really, really amazing people. So if you just need someone to talk to and you're not sure where to go, that's a good place to start if you really feel like you're in a bad spot. You can also go to veterancheckin.org, which is the, the project I've been working on led by the Bush Institute, which will get you to a human being who can then kind of triage you to an appropriate mental health resource if you need one. Headstrong Project, getheadstrong.org is a great organization. If, uh, if they're in your area and you're looking for mental health support, that's free and confidential. The Cohen Veteran Network is another one you can go to, free and confidential. Um, Vets for Warriors is another place that's got a great kind of hub that will get you to something that's appropriate to you if, if you need something. And then if you're of the post 9-11 era, the, the Wounded Warrior Project's Veteran Resource Center will also take as long as it takes to get you pointed in a direction where you can get some of the support you need. So that's a lot of my just rattled off right there. You can go back and listen to it. But the bottom line is, if you feel like you need to talk to somebody or you're just not quite sure what to do, take a step in a positive direction and let people who really mean well and really know what they're talking about help you figure out what maybe the next step is. Yeah, maybe go outside, take 10 deep breaths and, and call, call someone. I mean... Yeah, you, you can find me on the internet if you need me, by the way, and I mean that sincerely, so... Yeah, I'll say if, uh, if, if you're struggling and you're challenged, do, do what Blaine said. Do that first. And when you, when you feel your way through that hole, I'm going to give you some direction. Go to cigar.mail, S-I-G-A-R, print out the most recent report, grab that thing and walk it down to your congressman's office and make them answer to it. Make them answer it. Make them commit to cancel the authorized use of military force, the AUMF. 
those are two things that we can do immediately to keep this to happening to our service members in the future. Awesome, guys. Well, thanks so much for for your time and your perspective. It's much, much respect. Do you got anything in, in closing, Rich? No, good comments. Thoughtful. Brothers, thanks for coming on. We respect you. Appreciate you. Keep, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity, man. Later.